Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. And so he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud like of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Angus Horden spoke with Frank Woodhams about his long-standing association with the New South Wales Scottish Regiment and the history of the Scottish Rifles. Frank, thanks for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Frank, let's go back to the beginning. When and where were you born? Yes, I was born at uh, Bondi Junction on the 31st of January 1930 into uh, a loving family and I had one elder brother. With your family, did any of them serve in the First World War? No, no. My father was just a little bit too young for that. And uh, I had an uncle, a great uncle, who was my grandfather's brother, who uh, joined up and uh, was in the 2nd Battalion. He went away. I don't know a great deal about him, but I think he was in Gallipoli and then the Western Front. Somewhere along there, he was wounded returned to Australia and discharged because of the wounds. He managed to re-enlist, went back to the Western Front and was killed somewhere along the line, but I'm not quite sure from there. But just, if I might, a little interesting story. My son lives in uh, England and he has two daughters. Uh, One of them, who was uh, 15, was going to Belgium with the school to play softball. And of course, I related the story about my great uncle, thinking she wouldn't take a great deal of interest in it. But uh, when she went, they went to one of the battlefields and one of the teachers came up to her and said, there's a Woodham's grave over here. So uh, she actually saw the grave. So that was quite interesting. Wow. And, and were there many other Woodhams in the, in the First World War? Uh, only about two or three, none of my family, but I think there were about two or three others, yeah. Well, it was a rare name at that particular stage. So it's highly likely the grave she saw was that of your great uncle. Yes, I would think so. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's special. You were nine years old when World War II broke out. Can you share some of those boyhood memories growing up in a wartime Australia? When the war commenced, and especially when the Japanese came into it, they wanted to send the children up to Katoomba and get them away out of the coast of Sydney. Uh, My father and mother said, no, we'll stay together as a family, which um, was really good. We had this pinkish red paper tape that had glue on the back of it and you had to wet it. And we taped all our windows in crosses so that uh, there were any blasts, you know, to save the shattering. But I also clearly remember the two air raids that they had in Sydney. One, I was at home when the air raid came. So, of course, the instructions in those days was to get under the kitchen table, which we all did, and my father filled up the bath, which was another part of the instructions, and we just all sat there and waited everything out, and then, of course, the sirens went all clear. The second time, I was at a movie theatre at Bondi Junction called the Regal Theatre, watching a movie, I can't remember the name of it, and the air raid sirens went again, 
and right beside the Regal Theatre was a hotel, the Bondi Junction Hotel. So we all went down into the cellar of the hotel and uh, remained there until the all clear. And that was the time when the submarines uh, sort of bombed Rose Bay and there was uh, some damage done in the uh, Rose Bay area. So remember those two. And uh, one other time is when they captured one of the submarines, the many uh, submarines the Japanese had, and they sort of cut it in half sideways and they brought the submarine around to the schools on the back of a truck to show all the children what the inside of a Japanese submarine was looked like. So all those little things come flooding back when you start talking about them. And Frank, for the benefit of our listeners, the aircraft you're referring to were those launched by the Japanese submarines. That's correct. And um, it caught Sydney and indeed Australian East Coast totally by surprise. Exactly right, yes. But as a, as a young boy, you can remember, remember it testifying to it. Yes. <laughs> With regard to the Second World War, what uh, family members uh, had any association with the conflict? Yeah, uh, again, my father uh, was 42 around that age and he was due to be called up and unfortunately had a car accident, a very serious car accident where he lost his life so he couldn't go. My brother, who was seven years older than myself, was an apprentice at a, a steel company called Bernard Smith's making uh, ocean-going submarines. So that was an essential industry. And Ron dashed off and joined the army and they went and got him and brought him back. And then he went away again and tried to join the Air Force, but I don't think he was clever enough to uh, elude them. So he sort of missed out. But I had an uncle, my father's brother, Uncle Jack, and he was in the Air Force, a sergeant in the Air Force, and he spent a lot of time up on Good Enough Island. And it was just after they got the Japanese out of there. So what first drew you into the military world then? The street I grew up in, there were three other boys my own age, and one of them, his father, was in the militia uh, before the war. He was a major, and he was in the Army Service Corps. And they had a depot out at uh, Marrickville. And uh, some Sunday mornings when there was a parade on, Graham and I would go with the father and play in the grounds of the um, area. And of course, in those days, the ASC was uh, horse and um, wagons. So um, I used to see them uh, harnessing up the horses and the limbers and riding around in their uniforms with their breeches and all that sort of thing, which uh, intrigued me. Now, in um, 1948, Graham came down to my place, all dressed up in his uniform, which is the uniform of the New South Wales Scottish Regiment. So he had the kilt hairspiron, his rifle, everything. And he said, look, I've joined the 30th Battalion. And I said, well, that looks very interesting. Tell me about it. So I joined. I was in it for 25 years and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm still very much involved in former Army Reserve associations. Frank, can you tell us a bit more about that Scottish regiment? Yes, it has a long history and it dates back to uh, well, 1868, where the Edinburgh Scottish was formed. It only lasted for a couple of years, but they wore the Black Watch kilt. And I think that relates back to when Governor Macquarie came to Australia with the 73rd Regiment, which is the Black Watch Regiment. So probably that's why we went to the Black Watch type kilt, uh, tartan, I should say. Then in 1885, they commenced the Scottish Rifles, and that became quite a strong militia force. 
And at one stage, they had uh, 23 officers and 600 men. So there was a strong Scottish community at that time. And then, of course, later on, uh, we came to where we actually got the number 30th Battalion in the 1930s. And we then also was called the 30th Infantry Battalion, New South Wales Scottish Regiment. So that's where the part that I was in commenced from that stage. It's interesting, Frank, the um, history of the Black Watch, they are well known as being elite Scottish troops, but tracing them back to the Jacobite yes. uprising in the 18th century, I understand the Black Watch got its name for its black hearts. Yes, but they were also used uh, overnight to police uh, the area. And of course, that's another why they got Black Watch, because of uh, operating in the night time. And I understood also that the Black Watch didn't join the Scot the Scottish Rebellion, but in fact um, were loyal to the Crown. Yes. And, and again, there was a sinister side yeah. to them, you know, uh, predating, you know, their modern history. Yeah, yeah. Can you share with us, Frank, any more knowledge on the, um, on the regiment and your association? Yes, as I said, they were very strong all the way through, and I, I guess it comes back to the fact of a strong Scottish community. They were affiliated to the Black Watch when they were the Scottish Rifles, but the uh, government wouldn't fund the uniform, which they won't fund today, strangely enough. But then when the 30th Battalion was formed and uh, got the title of New South Wales Scottish Regiment, they then reapplied to the Black Watch to change it to the New South Wales Scottish Regiment as against the Scottish Rifles. And again, the government wouldn't fund the Scottish uniform, so it had to be funded elsewhere. And there was a, um, well, he had the title captain whilst he wasn't, and he had a um, ferry service on the uh, Sydney Harbour, and his name was uh, James Patrick, and they called him Captain James Patrick, and he was the president of the Highland Society. So he raised 5,000 pounds in 1934, which was a lot of money in those days, to uniform out the regiment. And in 1936, they had their first parade, which was at the um, Sydney Cricket Ground for the Highland Gathering on the 1st of January. So every year, the Highland Society had this um, Highland Gathering on the 1st of January. And that was the first time the Scottish Regiment paraded in all their gear, all their Scottish uniform, they had a pipe band and also a brass band as well. So they were, had the, everything. And even after the war, for the first two or three years, we used to parade at the Highland Gathering on the 1st of January. So you can imagine young 18, 19-year-old fellows after having been out all New Year's Eve going home and getting dressed in their uniform and fronting up all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> on, yeah. on a hot day in yeah. January, yes. Frank, 25 years in the reserves is a long time. What made you stay committed for that period? Well, part of it, I guess, was the Scottish tradition, and you're just a little bit different to other units. I also went to England in 1956, and like many other Australians, like myself, who went to England, either because the company sent you there or you went on a working holiday, which I did, uh, you served with a British regiment. Well, I served with the London Scottish. And before me, there'd been other 
officers out of the Scottish had been there. So it had become a bit of a tradition. There's always somebody from the New South Wales Scottish serving within. So that was quite um, a very good experience, very eye-opening, because they do things different to what we do, but achieve the same result. So that was one. And then I guess when um, we changed, uh, when the 30th was disbanded, I was lucky enough to get a posting because we lost a lot of officers at that time. So I continued on serving. And just interesting things that came up that kept it interesting for you to stay on, where we laid up our colours in February 1962 at St Stephen's Church. I was the 2IC of the company at that stage. And then I was transferred to the supplementary training wing where we trained officers to do their written exams. So for six months, we would bring other officers in to help prepare the uh, training, you know, military history, law and all those sort of things. And then of course, you'd have six months slow time where you were preparing for the next year. I must say, having lost the 30 battalion side of it, took a little bit out of it as far as I was concerned, but there was still a lot going on that I just wanted to stay on and I enjoyed the company. Frank, for those who haven't been part of the military and indeed the reserves, could you just share briefly what serving and in your capacity in the reserves for so long uh, has done for you and can do for people who may consider such an opportunity? In uh, 1990, another chaplain myself decided to get together the former officers of the 30th Battalion for a reunion dinner. At that stage, we had 45 attend. And through the evening, we asked the question, briefly explain how long you were in the reserves and what did it do for you in your civilian life? And variably, everyone said, it helped me in man management, helped me to instruct, helped me how to control people, and made me uh, regimented in things that I did. So there were the benefits that I got out of it, plus all these other chaps said exactly the same. But the other part too is the, you're part of a family, you're part of a larger family, and even if you don't see somebody for 30 or 40 years and you've served with them, even if they're in another company, you've got that bond together. And uh, when I formed the New South Wales Scottish Regimental Association in 1998 and got all these people back together that served in the um, Scottish, it was quickly friendships renewed and new friendships made and we still run the association even today. Frank, I can see clearly what it's done for you and indeed the opportunity is there today for anyone to build their own future. Yes. And as you say, this takes you now into your civilian life and can you share what you've been doing in that occupation and as you've already highlighted the benefits of the regiment? Yes I was in the motor industry and uh, worked my way up through uh, being a salesman, sales manager, managing director and uh, the training there in training salesmen to do their job, uh, making sure they had a program of what they were going to do each day, all those various things were essential in uh, managing a whole dealership where you were quite um, important that you man managed and made sure every department in that uh, dealership was functioning efficiently. Uh, Later on, I I got into um, property development, but there were no really man management skills there. There was only two or three in it. 
but you still had to control workmen. And that function came into it again of controlling people and letting them know that you were the boss, but also uh, you could uh, associate them with them very easily. Let's go back to your association and its function today, Frank. We liaise with the current serving Scottish, which is a company Scottish, 217 Battalion Royal New South Wales Regiment. Now, because the Army won't fund the Scottish uniform, we have a fund in a trust fund. One of the chaps, former chaps that was in the 30th before the war, wrote a book in All Things Faithful, which was the history of the 30th Battalion. When we sold that book, we made a $30,000 profit. That money was put into a trust. So we buy items of dress as they need them. I've bought white spats because they, you know, they lose them or whatever. And um, headdress, Balmorals as they call them, headdress and the um, red hackle that they wear, all those various items that we buy. We're, let's say, closely associated with A Company Scottish. And every year I'm invited to the St Andrews dinner uh, in December. And I think I've gone to that now for 30, 40 years or something or other. And it's very interesting when you look around the room and you see all these young chaps there. Of course, they seem to be much bigger than I was in my day, but they're all keen and the, you can see the esprit de corps of the Scottish is there. And uh, you sort of look around and you relate to people that are sitting down and say, that fellow reminds me of John Kelly because of his mucking around or something like that. But um, A Company Scottish is a very keen esprit de corps, as I said. And I, again, probably I'm a bit one-eyed about this, but I think just being a little bit different, they, they wear the Balmoral on their training nights. And I think that creates that esprit de corps that we also had. And Frank, their base, where's that? They're down at DY. It was an, an artillery base, uh, a depot. And they're down there, plus the headquarters is, is at Pimble. Frank, let's move on to Reserve Forces Day and the parade and your involvement. It was in 1996, we had had one of those officers dinner. It was towards the end of the night. There's quite a few ports had been drunk, of course, toasting everybody we could think of. And we're standing in a group and they all looked at me and said, Frank, why don't we form an association and try and get everybody back together again, which I started to do. Now, Lieutenant Colonel John Moore was in the process of seeing if we could conduct an inaugural Reserve Forces Day Parade as um, anniversary of the 50th anniversary of re-raising the citizen military forces. Mine was to be 50th anniversary of re-raising the 30th. So he rang me and had a chat and said, look, we're having a meeting. Would you come along to the meeting? So I said, yes, I would. And at that time, my wife was alive and I told her what I was doing. She said, Frank, don't you get yourself involved in the army again. I said, no, okay, I won't do that. <laughs> anyway, about six months later, I'm one in one of the particular groups that we had. And then of course I become 2IC to John. So now for 20 years, uh, we've been running the Reserve Forces Day Parade. Uh, of course, we started parading on Anzac Day, which uh, the CMF didn't do way back. And then, of course, we've got the Reserve Forces Day Parade in uh, first Sunday in July. And then we have a launch for the next year uh, in November where we bring the Interstate Reserve Forces Day committees to Sydney 
to give them the theme, hoping that they will follow that through when they uh, have their Reserve Forces Day. So again, with both the organisations I'm involved in, you finish one and then you start working on the other one, so it's ongoing all the time. But it's interesting, I enjoy it, and uh, John Moore runs a good group and they were all enthusiastic to make it a success each year. And Frank, it's important for listeners to appreciate that the short history in Australia, and in particular the role the military has played in that period, not taking anything from the very professional army and and forces that we have today, which are full-time, but the military history in Australia is one of volunteers. Yes, yes. And, And therefore, for you to be commemorating this and perpetuating this is so important because... It predates everything. So well done to you, Frank. Frank, are there any final comments you'd like to make about the reserves and indeed the Scottish? Yes, well, of course, the reserves through the years have provided the basis when we went to war because up until after the uh, Second World War, there were no real regular units or regular infantry units. There were instructors. When the uh, Boer War commenced, there were 80 people out of the uh, Scottish Rifles that went to the Boer War. Uh, That's where we got our first um, battle honour, South Africa, 91 to 93. Plus, uh, we were awarded a King's um, Banner at the time. Now, when we joined, officers and senior NCOs and also some privates had been in the Second World War, so they brought a wealth of experience to us in the initial training, even if you had a private in your section or platoon that had been to the war, he could give you um, probably better instructor than some of the instructions because they'd actually did all this work. But the, um, the range that we had were from um, the Middle East, they'd served in the Middle East, Malaya, uh, taken prisoner in the um, Malayan campaign, and also um, New Guinea, Uh, Quite a few of them, of course, fought in New Guinea, but others had also been in the Air Force and the Navy. So we had uh, some who were officers that, as I said, had been in the Air Force and the Navy. So they were quite um, interesting people. They didn't talk a lot about war, but occasionally what they talked about is this is the way we did it. So you got the experience of what they went. So once we started like uh, jungle warfare, which nearly everyone had been to, of course, uh, we were taught how to pack lightly. You only needed half a blanket, or you only took a, a spoon, and uh, you cut down everything to cut your weight down. So that was a wealth of experience that um, we took advantage of from the experience of these fellows. Now, when Korea started, again, there were 70 who left the battalion to go to Korea. In fact, a support company and it may have been one RAR, was um, all the officers in support company were 30th Battalion officers. And when they sort of reformed the the one AR to go to Korea, our original uh, CO, Hutchison, Ian Hutchison, who was a civilian, who was a a reservist out of all the regular officers and Duntroon officers, they selected a reservist to form one RAR or reform it, and he took them to uh, Korea. So it shows through the years where the reserve 
has been the main bulk of what um, supplied our Australian military forces up until, of course, when they commenced uh, the three RAR battalions. Frank, it's been a great conversation today. Thank you very much for coming in and sharing your wonderful story with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can also find us at that name on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Look us up and give us a like and a follow. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget... <laughs>